Welcome to FinTech Family Hour. This is Zach Anderson Pettit, content director at Money 2020 by day and your host by night. Today, we have a legend on the show, Alan Patrickoff. He's the chairperson and co-founder of Prime Time Ventures. He's the chairman emeritus, that's right, emeritus of Graycroft Ventures. He's on the board of overseers at Columbia Business School, and he's the author of a wonderful book called No Red Lights. This week, we don't have a sponsor, but we have a new one starting next week. So this episode is brought to you by me, and stay tuned to find out who our next sponsor is for this year, starting next show. And now, here's Alan. How have you figured out to wake up happy most days-ish? You know, I think you're born that way. I've always been a very positive. I'm, I'm not stupidly positive. I yeah, I, I mean, I, I I do have highs and lows, like any normal person. But I don't wake up depressed, even in the most darkest weather days. But I just have a very positive attitude about life. I always say I only know the word yes, and I you must be a terrible I, investor with that kind of an attitude. Well, I, <laughs> I disciplined by knowing when to say no. Ah. But I I don't find a reason to start out saying negative and then have to be, you know, be twisted around to be positive about something. I, I'm very open to doing anything, to trying anything. That's why my book is called No Red Lights. I, it really is truthfully how I live my life. It's, it's, it's thinking positively. I, you know, the, the word no is not part of my vocabulary. The nature of people I have found in life always want to put off till tomorrow it's just a natural inclination an idea comes up and someone will say you know i want to do i'll give that guy a call on monday i have a for better or worse if we're discussing an idea and something comes up i will pick up the phone and do it instantaneously or send a text or an email in the moment i live in the moment and does does that come naturally to you or have you trained yourself to kind of pick up the phone and do that? Because I'm definitely a procrastinator. I definitely don't do that you're, in the moment all the time. You're like everybody else and I, I can't stand it. And I, I, I deal with lots of people in my family and in the office. I had a situation just this morning that uh, one of the guys who works at Pine Time had an idea and he started to me, I said, I'm going to call so-and-so and put you on the phone. He said, no, no, don't, don't call him. Let, let me think more about it. Let's do it next week. I said, no, we're going to call him right now. So we got him on the phone and he was so excited afterwards that we'd done it. Uh, and if we hadn't done it today, you know, it would have probably been another week before we would have done telephone tag. It's takes a lot for me to actually get so excited about an idea that I ask in the moment. And one of those ideas that I had after a phone call once was actually Libby just walked in. So I'll put her on the spot. The first moment I met you, I was like, holy shit, we need to have Abby come speak because I think Abby will be perfect for Money 2020. You would be too. She's great. But I think it was like 20 seconds after we got off the phone that I emailed you and said, holy shit, is there ever any way that we could potentially hypothetically ever have Alan on the podcast? And here we are today. Well, we're here (laughs) because 
I'm very open-minded. I'm curious and I'm available. Not that I don't have a busy schedule, but I try to do everything. I mean, I'm pretty well known that I triple book my nights and, you know, I have my secrets of how to do that. Most people can do two, but I figured out how to do three. Not probably as effectively if you did one or two, but nevertheless, I, again, I'm curious, I'm interested, I'm positive, and it all fits. So I'm curious a couple different things. I mean, you're... Your, the list of musicals and other pieces of kind of non-financial securities or non-venture capital things you've invested in, what has been the most fun? I imagine like Hamilton, things like that were probably pretty wild experiences, but what's been the most fun to put money into? I mean, I've been doing it for so long and so many different things in so many different areas where it's not just theater, it's uh, art, it's classic cars i i mean i music I even mean, right i mean music yeah. I, I actually produced a show at town hall when i was very young in the folk singing world will you tell that story i owned a discotheque out in southampton that was a lot of fun that was during the late 60s and i owned the hottest discotheque i was the producer of that it's called lorsan and it was between 66 and 69 and it was during that same time that i was was the founding chairman of new york magazine so if you can imagine as a and i had gotten divorced so as a bachelor having the hottest magazine in the city and the hottest discotheque in the hamptons it was pretty cool so your nights that's when you learned how to triple book the nights is what you're telling me i don't know i i, I stayed i pretty much stayed the night there <laughs> Fair enough. You say in the book that the New York magazine is one of the things that you wish you, or I don't know how you phrase it exactly, but there's a little bit of emotion left there in terms of something that maybe you wish you could have been more part of in a longer term. Yeah. Tell I, me more about that. I think you caught the essence. I mean, I still am very friendly or certainly friendly, but very friendly in some cases with some of the people who are still around who are writers. I just was at a 50th anniversary for Ms. Magazine last week, which was born out of a spin out from New York, it was in an insert. And Gloria Steinem, who was the founder, was there, along with other people who had been in the, there originally. No, I was nostalgic in the sense that it was a very controversial sale when it was made to Rupert Murdoch. And the background of why it was uh, sold, you know, you can read my book and find yeah. out about that. But it was not something that everybody, like a lot of venture deals, can't wait to sell and go on to the next deal. It was a very uh, fun business experience in the city that I know, love, and am identified with, and it was became part of my persona. So the sale of it, which you know, it was a profitable sale, but nothing like. It would have been perhaps if we had held on to it, but it was not one of those investment transactions that, you know, is it an eating sardine or a trading sardine? It, it was really an eating sardine. It was something that you would have liked to have stayed with. And as I say, I it built my persona in this city. I mean, to this day, I'm still, to those who've been around long enough, uh, thought of as the a founder 
in one of the, I wasn't the creative founder. The creative founder was a guy named Clay Felker, uh, who was the editor. But I was very much identified with New York, the whole New York scene, and grew up here. So it was, again, uh, part of my lifestyle. And when I sold it, obviously, I was known as the former rather than being part of it. And, you know, listen, it was a ticket to a lot of things. I'm sure. I'm sure. But your current day, I'm sure you got some tickets to a lot of things to this Not point. like then. Not like then. That was a that different time, time. You could, you know, there wasn't any restaurant or any theater or any concert or anything that you, if you wanted to make an effort that you couldn't attend. What was like the the restaurant in New York at that point? She, I guess 21, really. Okay. And that was just an easy place? I think, actually, I think the title was really the 21 Club, but it was referred to as 21. Gotcha. When you said 21, I didn't know. And then when you said 21 Club, I knew what you were talking yeah. about. So that makes sense. That was a real loss to the city. But, uh, you know, I, I used to hang around a place at that time for breakfast and lunch called the Brasserie. Mm-hmm. which was now called the Lobster Club, which is on the side of the Seagram's building. Because downtown scene was no scene at that time. It was a midtown scene with the advertisers and the media industry and the excitement in New York was all between 42nd and 59th. And so I, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time, took a lot of meetings, had a lot of meals at the, at the Brasserie, Not, which was the sidecar to the, restaurant associates and the four otherwise known as the four seasons not the hotel the restaurant and that was a big focus of attention but but 21 club was where people would hang out it seems like a a, i mean not even it seems like a huge part of your identity i think is new york right i mean that's it's very tied into you it also seems like you're a person that puts kind of all of or most of yourself into what you do at work so I would imagine like the New York magazine sort of situation, probably there was some, you just kind of said it a little bit, but there was some emotion there and somebody like you, that's trading in and out of sardines regularly. How do you deal with kind of keeping your self-esteem to you and like not associating yourself too much with that, you know, chairman of the, of the magazine or this or that, and just knowing inside of yourself, have you figured anything out there? I, I would say that, New York was unique in that respect. I would say almost everything else I've been involved with has been more like a trading sardine. Not that I intended it to be, but you know, I've been involved with a lot of companies that have become well known, and a lot that many more that have not become well known yeah. and have failed. But you know, I've been involved with a lot of well known companies, but I was never identified specifically so that if I was introduced or someone met me would say he is or was the person behind this or that. So New York was unique because I lived here, because it was so prominent, because it was the first city magazine. And, you know, we're the center of media in the world at that time. Yeah. And media keeps coming up. And one of the things that you talk about in your book is the, the, like the inputs outside of finance and just like having kind of a, interesting life, I guess, <laughs> outside of just being a business person day to day. What are those for you today? Like, do you still go see music all the time? Do you do like watch comedy, anything like that today? I only above. Just the uh, same stuff as before, basically yeah, hasn't I, shifted. One of my closest friends is one of, actually I have to say he's almost former at the moment, but is probably 
the most prominent rock promoter in the country, certainly in the city. Well-known name. His name is Ron Delsner, and it used to be Ron Delsner Presents, and he did every concert you can think of at the Bowery, at the Beacon, at the Madison Square Garden, Jones Beach, and all over the country. And that's kind of my ticket to concerts, and I'm still a regular concert goer with him and hope to continue that way. You still do like the theater and that kind of stuff too? Just kind of all out the at night all yeah, the time? Yeah, yeah, all the time. I have a really random one for you. Did you ever see Steve Martin back in the day? Because you, talk, you talked about like, uh, you know, Bob Dylan and folks like that that would have been around the same time. I uh, I watched him on Saturday Night Live. That's, okay. That was my contact with him. I, gotcha. I, you're mentioning someone I had no relationship with, although I did rent my rental house in East Hampton to his ex-wife <laughs> there you go <laughs> that's Connected the closest, somehow. I, closest i've come well, you, right you, you talked about bob dylan at the gaslight and i think he performed at the gaslight around the same time so yeah. i was just late sheer 60, curiosity late 60s yeah sheer curiosity so you talked about the new york magazine being kind of the the thing that had that emotion for you and that was like really a th- like something that stuck with you i would imagine Graycroft is probably pretty similar in some way in terms of you know being heavily Apex involved more so okay you know, I started Alan Patrickoff Associates with practically nothing yeah. in 1970. And today it manages, I don't know, at last count, 60 or $70 billion. Yeah. So, it, you know, and it's in 12 countries and is a major f- firm. It's actually, I would say, I, I always wanted it to be. It is an institution today. Uh, Apex will be here. Uh, it will far outlive me, even though I'm going to live to 114. It will live, live on. Graycroft was a second chapter, in, which I started in 2006. And Graycroft obviously is now going into its 18th year. Uh, so it uh, still has a little bit more to go before you can say it's a permanent institution, although it's headed in that direction. But, you know, me, Alan Patrickoff Associates, which became Apex, yeah. uh, which is my name with an X at the end because we went international, it really was a pioneer in the whole venture industry. Whereas, not, not to take away from Graycroft, but Graycroft, you know, the industry had been around for 35 years when I started that and didn't make the same kind of waves. But there, the word venture capital was hardly in use in 1970 when I yeah, started. I should have gone with Apex. I was saying Graycroft simply out of most recent recency yeah. bias. But, I mean, you kind of, you took us there. So, what what was raising one of the first venture capital funds in the history of the world like? This was, I mean, around the same time Don Valentine and that whole thing yeah. was happening. Yeah. Like I, when I first met you, I was like, oh my God, this was happening on the East Coast while that was happening on the West Coast. And just yeah. what a time to be alive. Sure, what Kleiner, was Kleiner Perkins yeah. was around that time. Right. And Pitch Johnson was starting up there. You know, it was a uh, in New York. It was unique. The only other firm like us was Warburg Pincus at that time. So, uh, who were you trying to raise from? Was it like families, like, all families, just in family offices yeah. across the board? Yeah, Individu- okay. individuals and families. And what was the pitch? Like, p- pitch me. I mean, the concept the, of venture capital didn't the, exist the, yet. Right? My pitch was: you have a a market portfolio of General Motors and IBM and companies like that, and you ought to have a percentage of your capital in 
the new young companies coming up, not necessarily technology, but new young companies. And uh, so invest with me and we'll experiment. And they just said yes immediately no, and it was they easy? they didn't say yes immediately, but it, it, it wasn't an overwhelming task to get it done. I actually don't even remember how long it took, but I'm sure it was well under a year, maybe under six months to get it done. It was, I mean, remember I started with a fund of two and a half million dollars and I, and a, and a uh, group of clients. I, I started out with the concept of clients who I was on retainer to, plus a little fun a kitty, you might say, to have on the side. Explain the client structure. I don't know if I understood they that. They paid me a retainer each year to, to vet private opportunities for them. So it was basically like a private placement sort of thing. And they were paying, like that was the beginning of a management fee? Yeah, it was a, it was a fee. Yeah. It was a fee, a retainer fee. Yeah. We just call them different it things. It was called now. a retainer. Yeah. Uh, that's what I, and instead of 20%, I think I got 10% carry. If, uh, and it was, yeah, somewhat of a pledge basis. If you want to invest, fine. If you don't, you don't have to. I never thought of $25,000 fee being 2.5% of a million dollars. I just, it was a fee. It was like, you know, you're paying so much to hire someone in your office. You pay me to outside your office to come up with ideas. And, and in case someone shows you an idea to look at it for you. And okay, so you go, you raise the 2.5 million. How, what were there so many deals that the deploying of capital was kidding? easy? How were, yeah, there's, I mean, there half were, of these are devil's no advocate deals. questions for the record, but there were no deals. <laughs> there, so, why, how, how did you even think to raise the two and a half if there were no deals? Well, it was two and a half plus I had nine clients who paid me a retainer. I just knew that all these people were investing heavily in the stock market, and I said, there's an opportunity for a lot of emerging companies that they're, they don't know anything about, they have no interest in, they're so small, but they would have a little bit of their money in it. How did you figure out how to uh, analyze those companies? Were you just kind of making it up as you go? It's no different than analyzing a public company, except you had more inside information. But when I say inside, I mean internal information. Right. You had access to the actual figures as opposed to what was reported quarterly reports how would you classify those companies were they like series a seed companies or were they later on startups they were well, they were startups. mostly startups okay well, and very early stage what and you as you approached them i take it you were approaching them they weren't yeah. coming to you mostly they, what what was their reaction i mean if you sat in those days and waited for the phone to ring of someone who wanted to raise money you probably would have been sitting there very quietly because first of all, no one have know, knew you existed because there was no directory, there's no industry. And secondly, they they wouldn't have known you know, where to find us, what they had to do to raise money. And so we had to go out and find opportunities wherever we could, whether it was going to meetings or calling up people or or dealing with investment bankers and you know trying to find out what what opportunities around the first investment i made which again described in the book was the most unlikely investment you could have ever made which was in the secondary lead smelting business yeah a, a scrap operation in new jersey very different 
than venture deals today. I think if that same person uh, wanted to get an appointment today, there was not a prayer they could have gotten a meeting because you know there's not something that venture capitalists invest in. And it turned out to be an extremely, extremely, one of the most successful investments I ever made. The company is still in business 50 years later and it's probably worth several billion dollars. It's now the largest metal smelting company in the world that you never heard of and never will. <laughs> and it doesn't matter. It's still doing what yeah, it's I'm doing. Not an, I'm not an investor anymore because I s- s- sold out a long time ago. It did go public. What has it been like for you to just watch the world of venture capital grow? I, I can't say satisfying. I'd say it's surprising hmm. to think that, you know, an industry that probably had, I don't know if they, they didn't count it in those days, but probably it would have been under a hundred million dollars invested by a long country, shot. I would think right? maybe under 50 countrywide. I have no idea. I mean, the and, first and Kleiner Perkins, you, they were all around, they were all under 10, right? I mean, they were yeah, all they were pretty, all pretty, pretty tiny and, and there were only like four yeah. or five of you. And today, you know, we're talking about multi-billion dollar in the industry and, and funds that are over a billion dollars. So it's a vastly different. And today, the flow of deals that come in organically is just staggering. I mean, Primetime Partners, my new firm, which is three years old, has we keep track of it. I think we're up to 1,500 deals that have come in since we started. Has the muscles that made you a good venture investor in the early days, like in, in the, the Apex, I guess, or a- APA, the, the Alan Patrickoffs and Associates days, are those the same muscles that make a good investor today? Or have those changed? And how have you changed? Uh, I just think questions. today there's a lot more technology involved in investing. There are many, many, many more people who are in the business today who have MBAs or engineering degrees. In those days, it was not a prerequisite and it was not, uh, I mean, everybody wasn't an MBA. So this, and the, and the people who, who founded companies like this lead smelling business, they were college graduates, but very few had gone to business school or got advanced degrees. There's a lot more knowledge and skill among the entrepreneurs today than there was then. Do you think that's still required today, though? Do you think you can still do it without without that? Like, do you think if you were coming up, you today without an MBA, that the just the hard work and grit and giving a shit can get you there? Me, probably not. But the entrepreneurs who started these companies, probably they don't necessarily have to have a, a business degree. But I think it helps to have a, the tools that you need to build a company. I'm curious about the humanity of it, because I think I think one of the things that you you kind of talk about a lot in the book and one of the things about about you seems to be the the obsession with the human and bringing it back to that throughout. So, I mean, I think I think the question is really just how much of that humanity has in terms of the investing piece, your ability to analyze a deal when you're meeting a founder, does it still come down to just meeting the founder? Do you ask different questions today than you used to, or is it really just getting to know a human sort of a thing? No, I, th- I think, I, think it's, I mean, you know, you want a, uh, an entrepreneur who's driven, mm-hmm. 
it would be nice if they came with some experience in the industry they're going into. Sure. It would be nice if they had had some prior experience running a business, but you want someone ideally who has all those characteristics. You want someone who has some training of some sort, whether it's financial skills or marketing skills that bring something to the picture rather than just an idea. Although ideas uh, helps to have the right idea. And then it's want to have someone who can motivate people, someone who can put a team together. A very important thing is, which is lacking a lot of times, is someone who understands the economics of the particular business they're going into rather than just saying, I want to be uh, run a dog walking company yeah. and don't stop to think about what it costs to acquire a customer, what the lifetime value is, what it costs to service it, you know, how much operating costs are needed, what kind of capital investment is needed. So someone who understands the economics of the business is very helpful. And someone who understands the size of the market, are they going into something that really has potential for exponential growth? And, you know, you put all those things together, when you find that combination, you got a good chance of being success. So what was the, what's the thesis behind primetime? Obviously, I know a little bit, but there's a softball. Well, going back to where I started at primetime with my partner, Abby Levy, in, in 1985, uh, when I was 85 years old, but in uh, 2020, yeah. I had been reading a lot about what, by the way, was, was a recent cover of The Economist about people living to 120. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah, you said earlier you were going to live to 114. I'm, I'm going to live to 114. And I, just I had, I had heard a lecture six? years ago by a gerontologist at Mount Sinai who said we could all live to 114. Whether we did or not is a different story, but we had the physical ability to do it. And that had stuck with me. And I have this positive attitude. And I was reading about people who were living you know, to much beyond 100. And there was a lot of studies coming out about the population trends and how more and more people were going to be, you know, living into later stages and the, the needs they have. And on top of that, my wife had been ill for many years with Alzheimer's. She passed away in 2020. And I just was intrigued with this whole idea. And one of my sons said that Abby Levy also was intrigued, but she was about to start a new fund. <laughs> and I had just decided to leave Graycroft to do I didn't know what. And I said, what a great uh, situation. It's a field I'm interested, someone I know, I knew Abby, but she was the founding president of Thrive Global, and I was the, on the board as an investor from Graycroft. And we got together, and two or three weeks later, we started a fund. I came up with this idea of prime time, which conveys exactly what it is. We're in our prime time. And we focus only on product services, technologies, experiences for the older generation. Did Abby have a similar thesis yeah, as she was? Exactly. So you guys just happened to be running no, after it at the yeah. same time? I had an extra feature, perhaps more of it than she had is that I thought there were a lot of older people who were retiring too young, and that they were either voluntarily or they had pensions 
or they were being forced out because people wanted to make room for younger people, including Apex. Apex has a retirement age of 60. Wow. You have to leave. You really have to leave. I, I was past that, but others have lived with there's now been three changes in senior management and they still require you at 60 to leave. Do you see that changing at Apex? No. No. But I, I, you know, I can understand it somewhat, not for myself, but I think at 60, you're just beginning your life. So I had this idea of also investing in companies founded by older people who maybe if they'd been in the furniture business, they'd go back into the furniture business mm -hmm. with more knowledge, the best Rolodex and plenty of energy and more money in their pocket and that they would make great entrepreneurs and do it a second or third time. And uh, so I put that idea together with the idea of investing in products and services and we formed Primetime. Are there pieces of it that are about helping people live longer or is it really about, or live in, live longer, better lives more specifically? And I ask that because my grandmother actually had Alzheimer's as well. And my mom is probably likely moving slowly in that direction. And I run Folding at Home, the Stanford kind of, you know, Alzheimer's distributed computing thing on all my computers that I can. So I'm curious if you're investing in any kind of science that's going to, you know, could work in that direction. We're not doing anything. We, we said as a, a policy, we don't do anything that requires FDA approval because gotcha. it takes too much capital yeah. and too much time. Not that we don't think that's great, but yeah, yeah, yeah. just for us, with, a, with only a $50 million fund to start with, I didn't want to get us into over our boots and undertaking things that we get wiped out after the first round. There's a reason most of the things I just described are a philanthropy. So that's that's why I was I was curious. I was wondering, like, are you doing like how could you ever get to a liquid <laughs> liquidity moment with some of the R and D you know, that's interesting, necessary? Interesting businesses that are providing services to older people. I would imagine that that I mean that is a long long list of things that are necessary there. I'm, yeah. How many, how much of it are, so I would imagine there's a lot of like Uber for X, but it's, you know, X for 60 plus. Are you getting a lot of like Uber for 60 plus or that kind of a thing where people are taking a product that we all know and love and trying to kind of allocate it to a different age group? Yeah, I would say that, I mean, some of the, I mean, I'm just making this up, but I mean, you have furniture, there's certain furniture that is probably easier for older people to get out of. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's exercise classes, but there are special classes for people who are older. There's food that's for regular people. And, and not that they separate, but I mean, there's an orientation possibility for uh, something for people. Of course, there are other areas like caregiving, which younger people don't need. I was telling my mom about prime time the other day. She's uh, my mom's 70, 77, 78. And she, you know, very similar to you still works 50 hours a week. She teaches yoga online. She's trying to build an empire. And I was kind of, you know, just catching her up on what I was doing in New York this week. And she was asking me about what kinds of businesses you are investing in. And I was giving her just some generic pieces of it. And she kind of actually started talking about ageism in a way that surprised me. And what is it about ageism that just bugs the living hell out of you? Or just tell me more about it. Cause it seems like you maybe have had some, 
some personal experiences no, or no, just I like, not, I've not had any prejudice. I haven't or seen any, it happen I haven't or something. Forced that. Why is it pissing you off? I would say I'd be a great director of a public company today, but I don't think anyone's going to hire a new director at, at age 88, soon to be 89, by the way. But, you know, and to a certain degree, you want to have room for younger people to grow into posi their position. I think that industry has got to figure out a way to tap into older people because they're going to be more of them and they kind of need them to groom people behind them. And if you let your age force terminate at 60, you're missing the opportunity for using that older age group to uh, impart wisdom and experience to the younger group. See, I think wisdom and experience is such an important part of that because I think a lot of people, when they think of when they think of that next act, you know, I think especially like the stereotype is like a ticket taker at a movie theater or something like that. And I think that the message that you're trying to get across is so much more inspirational than that. And is I think is it's a much better version of the world, right? Where where we actually as as youths are like listening and actually kind of taking pieces of previous lives and moving forward with them which so there's there's a question that's kind of politics related this is a question that i actually really like to just ask anybody that has been around and paying attention to the world i have a theory my theory is that every four years or eight years and this is kind of politically related but i also just think it's a world thing we swing this pendulum pretty far to one direction right be that zero interest rates be that a democrat be that a republican be that perspective on gender or something like that and then we swing that pendulum back the other direction after we've had some experience over on this side. But at basically no point do we kind of end up in any happy medium that I've found, maybe for like slight moments. But as a human race, we seem to really like extremes and pendulum swinging and like reacting to the thing that we saw before. Do you agree with that? Did I just make all of that up? And that's just my own version of the world. Curious about your perspective. Well, you're saying at any one time, things are either going up or going down. That is a simple, uh, oversimplified version of it. Yeah. They don't stay yeah. static. Someone taught me that about real estate once. You know, it's either all, it's going up or it's going down. It doesn't stay flat for you know too long a period of time. And I think that things there's a self-correcting mechanism. I mean, right now, for example, in real estate, we have, in my opinion, big serious problem of enormous vacancies in commercial real estate, retail locations, which is going to wreak havoc with the performance and equity values of cap rates of a lot of real estate businesses and will trickle, will permeate into the banks who've lent money against them. And so the self-correcting is the banks will stop lending, yep. people will stop building new buildings, businesses will keep growing, and, you know, we have this new factor of, of business and industry probably operating with at least 20% less need for capacity because of a four-day week and mm. in most cases, 60%. So it's creating a lot of empty spaces. In the apartment area, it doesn't seem to be having the impact because there seem to be more people around. I mean, certainly New York is having a, I wouldn't say a renaissance, but a lot harder to find an apartment today than it is to find a, a commercial uh, loft. Yeah. 
Well, so you, you said crisis in there though, right? Because that's that's part of it is that, of course, things are always going up, going down, things ebbs, things flow. But I guess I, when I look at you, I think of somebody that's kind of not running around with their hair cut off at any point, right? Or running around with their hair on fire, I should say. Pretty middle of the road, pretty unstressed. But we're talking about this real estate crisis, and then we're not going to pay attention to it as a human race or an industry until it reaches utter crisis. And then to your point, we react, right? So oh. I guess that's kind of what I'm driving towards. It's just like, we ne- we don't seem to want to not have crisis. We seem to thrive in the idea that we're either that fire is burning on the left or that fire is burning on the right and the pendulum swings back and forth sort of thing. Well, it's the same in world history. It's the same in international relationship. I mean, we're, we like China. We don't like China. Right. Like this country. We don't like, we go through a lot of cycles and, you know, the market goes down and eventually the market goes back up. I mean, you just have to withstand these turns that are just a natural part of our activities. Yeah. I mean, things don't stay constant. And do you know that having been through enough market cycles, you just have that inside of yourself as part of kind of where we started, yes. even with the positivity? Yeah, I, I, I believe very much that if you can wait long enough, this somehow is and hold out, there's a self-correcting mechanism. You know, you may have missed trying to play the turn, but that's why long-term investing and compound rates of return really, really has produced enormously positive results just by investing and holding and staying there. And My last question for you is one that I've actually never asked any of my guests before, Uh, and I believe I've had 105. So your guest, I believe number 106. And the question for you is what's the most interesting conversation you have ever had or most interesting person you've ever met? Whatever comes to mind. I've met a lot of interesting people. Why uh, do you think I asked you? Uh, uh, <laughs> it doesn't have, you don't have to limit I it to I would one. say, honestly, Bill Clinton is probably the most interesting person. Bill Clinton is an amazing person. I, I would have been happy if he was president for life. Uh, <laughs> that uh, whole democracy thing and, really and, gets in the way. And I'm friendly with both he and his wife, and she's fabulous also. They're both smartest couple I know. But you you asked about conversation. When you get to know Bill Clinton at all, uh, when I first met him, you're very intimidated. This guy's so smart. I better read, Time, at those days, Time Magazine. I better read the New York Times today. I better prepare myself for my questions and answers so I can look smart. And you get into you sit down at the table and you find out within 30 seconds, you don't have to speak a word. You just listen for the next hour. He's just telling yeah. stories. Yeah. It's a monologue, almost a monologue, not a selfish monologue, just that he, everything he has to say is so smart. He's so knowledgeable about so many different subjects. It's, it's rather, you know, a unique experience. But I've met a lot of people. I met a, a fascinating guy named Hernando de Soto. Did you ever hear of that? I don't think so. Uh, yeah, that's why I mentioned Fernando de Soto is from Peru, and he is the world's expert, and I wouldn't say he's the inventor, but he's the person behind the concept of monetizing assets for the poorest people in the world. If you go to most developing nations, people are living in 
farms or villages or wherever, and they have no title to anything. They just live there, and yeah. their families live there, and their family after them will live there. Right. And Hernando has spent his life getting nations, countries, to give people title to what they have. Because if they have title, once they have yeah. title, they can sell it, or they can buy the next door property, and they can build capital of their own. And it would change dramatically. And it's, 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 it's happening in Peru, it's happening in Egypt, and happening in countries. Not as fast since he's had this idea for 20 or 30 years, and he, he's written several books about it. But wow. it's in the, the concept in itself, I find fast they always have. I mean, it makes sense. The idea of ownership pulling people out of poverty is not novel, but like that in terms of emerging markets and doing that in those that places, single that's thing, super mob. That single novel. thing more than anything else would give a person to monetize the place they've been living, yeah. which they have, because right now that they can't sell something they don't have title to. All right. I got to ask you one last one. Did, have you ever met Charlie Munger or Warren Buffett? Uh, Warren Buffett, I have. Okay. Yes, more than once. Yeah. Have you guys ever had gotten a chance to have dinner or anything like that? Not dinner, but it's again, in my book is a story about my, uh, I don't know if I've gotten that far yet. Oh, so you haven't read the whole thing. I'm like halfway through. Yeah. A good, yeah, yeah. A good, a good story. I'll about, admit it. About Warren Buffett. He went to Columbia Business School. Yeah. I did. I put all of the rest of it together. I just hadn't gotten that far in the I book. Mean, I, I assumed you would have met. Give, I me, a, give me a, give me a hint. <laughs> I mean, I, I haven't met Taylor Swift. Yeah. I, I know. Kansas City, I got a closer connection with Travis Kelsey. I know right Paul now. McCartney. Is that, I mean, yeah, that, that on, counts? Okay. Paul McCartney is definitely to me, up there. To me, yeah. I, I, the Beatles were, uh, I mean, there's nothing. I think Paul McCartney is our winner. Okay. I mean, so Paul then, McCartney or Bill Clinton are I, up on that list. Yeah. I had an interesting, I was at, since we're name dropping, I was at Bob De Niro's 80th, 80th birthday party about two weeks ago, three weeks ago. And Paul McCartney came up to me and said, <laughs> That's a ridiculous name. He drop. came up to me and said, "Don't we know each other from East Hampton?" <laughs> Instead of me going up to him and say, "Don't we?" Know? Uh, that was to me. I was really. What did you say back? I thought that was that was cool. I was embarrassed by that one. Did you just say uh, yes, or what did you say? I said yes. Cool? Yes, we definitely we've been at several <laughs> events. He's he's just a local guy out in the Hamptons. He really right. is. He's not. He doesn't live in a castle on a hill or something just he's a normal abbey roll kind of down guy. the street i mean he's not he's not anyone special in the community but i wish you'd That's give me cool an idea then <laughs> i think i'm thinking of somebody i i i i mean those are pretty who who have i mean it sounds like i was going to ask who the most fun president to talk to was but it sounds like bill clinton was probably your yeah. answer yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, obama was interesting and there, I remember something about, weren't you at some point or are you still on some, like an advisory committee for? I'm, a, I'm on the board of something called CIPIC, Securities Investors Protection Corporation, which is the, and you, everyone knows FDIC, which protects your bank, the banks. CIPIC protects your stock ownership with, with mm -hmm. securities firms. And I I'm on that board. I was thinking of like an African country. I was yeah, about to I take was, a strong left I turn. Was, I was an advisor to the president of Nigeria. That's what it was. Okay. Can you give years. me 
two seconds on what that was like, and then I'll stop I recording. I loved that experience. It was a great experience for me, I think. And in fact, I just reached out to him. His name is President Obasanjo, and he was a very exciting, interesting guy who I really enjoyed. I was on his presidential advisory board for five years by accident. And, uh, but <laughs> was it was a, it was by a, accident. But it was a great it was a great experience. Read the book. All right, I'll read the book. I'm, I'm trying to be a book. teaser, so maybe <laughs> your podcast will sell a few of my books called No Red Lights, which you can get on Amazon, or you could get it through Audible, which I was a founder of. And That's, you read it on Audible, so that yes, is an extra special moment. I read it myself. That was because the president of Audible, Don Katz, told me that the books that sell best on Audible are read by the person who wrote them. Candidly, I would That's wouldn't. why by Obama... Uh, book and, and his wife's books are so successful yeah i i having you read it i think adds something really special and i do think i would have thought twice about downloading the audible versus reading the normal book it's hard not, so. it's hard you know to, to do the audible version took five and a half days how many like retakes did you have to do of paragraphs and whatnot oh there's a lot because wow. you go through it and then at the end of every day they have a producer who is meticulous in yeah. How you, I mean, for example, pronouncing President Obasanjo was, had to be done, you know, they know how it's supposed to be pronounced. There was one person's name I could not get right, and I had, I must have repeated it 10 times to get it, so to their approval. Well, it's, I'm a, as I admitted, I'm only halfway through it, but it is a hell of a story. So we will put it in the show notes and hopefully sell a few of them. Alan, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for listening. If you're still listening, you're probably reaching for your phone to pick your next podcast or switch to music or just call it a day because you can't believe how much valuable information you just took in. But before you pick that next thing, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, and all that jazz. Generally scream from the rafters about how much you love FinTech Family Hour. And until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, your costs low, and I love you all.